Welcome to another episode of Roses All Trash. My name is Ryan. I'm Catherine. Today we're continuing with Layla F. Saad's Me and White Supremacy workbook. This week's topics cover day 7 through day 14. There are questions for every day, so we can go through, but three of them were really specific about your specific relationships to Black people, and I think that was really interesting. And That, for me, was work that was super super helpful because it allowed me to pinpoint specific instances and specific relationships where these aspects of white supremacy manifested that I hadn't really consciously considered. So it was like obviously painful work to do, but really, really important, specifically around like black children and thinking about seeing race and like my introductions to race as a child and how that shaped and manifested my interactions with race and my conception of race now as an adult in ways that are still very present in my life. And I was really interested to see if you had any similar thoughts. Well, what are those ways? I was thinking specifically about how in my elementary school, there were like very few black children and there were a few, but there was like this one black boy and there was this dynamic of like him being like the bad kid, like the kid who spoke back, the kid who was rambunctious and energetic and like couldn't focus in class. I mean, he and I sort of would he- go head to head quite frequently because we we're in the same class together. Like he would poke me with pencils and I would like chase him around. And it was like this dynamic that we had of like good and bad where like I was a very good student. I was very quiet. I was very focused and I was like very much like good teacher's pet, goody two shoes style. And this relationship dynamic, I've seen myself projected onto like other like black people, black men in my life specifically, and onto like other black children, even now that like I'm no longer a child, that simplified version of him that I saw as a child because of like this lens of white supremacy that I saw him through is something that like persists in my mind. Yeah, as somebody who went into college thinking that she'd focus on education policy. I had a lot of like very specific intentions to put myself in spaces with black children because for example you want to be a teacher which I never wanted to do that but if you want to be a teacher there is a pipeline for teachers who graduate from prestigious schools and then teach at prestigious schools and then there's also a pipeline of kids who go to prestigious schools and then purposely put themselves in like quote-unquote urban classrooms or whatever or do teach for America and it's in some ways not necessarily exploiting, but definitely making use of these uh, well-intentioned young teachers with good background. And then there's also a track for people who grew up in those quote-unquote urban schools and then find their way back to them. And so, especially if I wanted to do genuine like real work, not just around education, but around education policy, like I wouldn't be going into those like prestigious school backgrounds, you know, like I wouldn't be going into private schools to do my like policy research or my policy uh, work. I would find myself, for example, at the Go Project, which is somewhere I interned where it's sort of like socio-emotionally informed school support. And so it's like a very specific relationship that these schools have with this population of parents and students navigating that too is like it's not just as simple as like that missionary dynamic you know like that savior dynamic there was all these different layers of savior slash is this really good work like is this going to benefit the kid in the long run like type of thing 
that was like a specifically education-based internship that I had. And then also I worked at a crisis nursery where I would say 75% of our clients, and by clients I mean kids under 12 years old, (laughs) which is so cute. They were kids of like black and brown kids. So I feel like I've had more close relationships with black and brown kids than I have had with black and brown adults. I don't think that's, I don't know, I'm not saying that to be like, oh, shame on me or something like that. It was just, again, like a very specific environment that I not exactly sought out, but it was just the setting for the work I did. And I realized while journaling that something that Saad brings up early on in this week is the idea that without BIPOC, there is no white supremacy and like, quote unquote, not seeing color is not sustainable and it's racist. And we need to be able to develop the skill of seeing difference without equating it with good or bad. And I struggle a lot with that because I guess the moralizing sort of inclination is so strong. And that's, you know, my problem that I need to keep continue working on. But with like black and brown kids, I, I realize that like I get that. Like I understand what it means that like, oh, this is like a black kid and like that informs stuff, but it doesn't mean like the need to save a black kid or save a brown kid. I finally, through my interaction with these children, understand like what seeing color could look like. Part of that is problematic, right? Because they, they grow up and then they turn into black adults and then our attitudes change. But for me, that was like kind of good reflection for me on the work I have been doing around and involving black kids. You know, what have I been putting out in the world through this very specific work that I've been able to do? In my experiences at school specifically, like when I was younger, elementary school, middle school, and like something that I see that still manifests itself in like my mind today is like the way I would use this sort of very elitist like intellectualism, it's like as a veneer of the racism and the white supremacy where I would notice like that sense of superiority in myself, but I was like, oh, it's not because of like race, it's because like I did better in school or like, you know, I did better on the math test or I was better at writing if they just tried harder. I think something about like the concept of not seeing race like really promotes this sort of individualist but model minority, like pull yourself up by the bootstrap because it kind of goes hand in hand if you like you don't see race. It doesn't matter to me, so I don't understand why it matters in your life, and therefore, like, why aren't you succeeding in the same way that I am? It allows people to really justify this, like, oh, it's not, like, I'm not racist, I just think that they should have worked harder, or, like, think that they should have been better at school, or pursued an education more, or something, or whatever it is that the criticism is. But the, the root of that is still white supremacy. They're just finding a different, like, outlet for it, or a different manifestation of it. Yeah, thinking about your attitudes as a kid is very telling. You know, you don't have an ulterior motive to be cruel necessarily. And you're you're just absorbing and reflecting at a much greater rate the attitudes around you. Actually, that was very influential in my like good relationships with the black kids I worked with. Most of my coworkers were also black. They much more accurately reflected the socioeconomic and racial backgrounds of the kids than I did. I think that's, that was actually really determinative. Your ecological setting really matters. I'm sure most of your teachers and the involved parents not being Black had a huge impact on your attitudes towards race as a child. 
I think a lot of the way white supremacy around Native Americans and Indigenous people for me is manifested is also rooted like in my elementary school, like those foundational years, because it wasn't necessarily like the I don't see race or like this teaching of like stereotypes or anything. Like there were all these like stereotypes and stuff that like I literally didn't even know existed until like I got to college. People were like, oh yeah, like the stereotype that like Native Americans are alcoholics. And I was like, what? Like that's a thing because it was a predominantly white school, they discussed race and racism with us. But it was like this abstract, distant concept that's like not present in real life, you know? Well, I don't think it's that helpful to like repeat stereotypes and like be like, oh, can you believe I didn't know about this until then? Because knowing about racism and like the messages of racism isn't the same thing as like knowing and being like race conscious you know what I mean well that's the point that I'm making an attempt to like raise children or like white children who aren't actively racist by not seeing race the ostensibly good thing of like oh I don't even know that stereotype existed it's not good it's not better it's equally as bad as like being aware that it existed because by not knowing that it existed it's like not knowing that racism exists on some level you know yeah or like not being affected by it yeah especially when like just because a white person in a white liberal environment might be like oh we don't have much racism a person of color in a white liberal environment might feel very different yeah it's like erasing it from my child's worldview by teaching it that way and it's something that as i was thinking of those instances reminded me of what was in like the previous week's reflection about tone policing where it was like asking BIPOC to discuss their experiences with like white supremacy while somehow removing their emotions around it that's somewhat relevant to like my experiences like we were allowed to discuss race we're allowed to discuss like racism and like we know that it exists but it, it was given to us in this abstract sterilized concept that was like you know in the past or like not here or like pushed aside so, like, the visceral reality and the emotion of it was removed. Yeah, I'm, like, thinking about this thing that our high school would do where, like, a couple times a year they would have this, I forgot what it was called, it had a specific name, but it was, like, this bonding event for, like, a couple hours after school and then you would, like, start off by doing, like, little sharing activities and then it would accumulate in this thing where everyone stands in a line and then you step over the line if you've ever, like, done whatever they say and it's, like, I thought about killing myself and then a bunch of people step forward and it's, like, this big thing and, like, like, (laughs) I feel like learning more about, like, restorative justice now, like, I understand where those practices are coming from and what these, like, relatively privileged, mostly white, teachers are thinking these teachers and administrators are thinking when they like incorporate that into a school setting even if they're completely conscious that like it wasn't exactly made for privileged students like it it was for use in like less privileged schools that don't have the option of like providing long-term social emotional care and like so you have to do this like big intervention when like any possible field related to psychology the best intervention is the least invasive intervention and that's true for like like literal physical biomedical shit too like the least invasive intervention is supposed to be is the best one however when you can't afford a non-invasive long-term intervention like that the best you can do is like do a really big impactful one and so like i get what they were like going for however like like that's the stuff you look back on and you're like oh my god that was a cult (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, I'm like, that's just like group therapy, but like with no specification to the group. Most group therapy or like, you know, therapy groups, I guess, like where like people like meet once a week for their therapy thing. Like there's like a theme, like people are there like because they're connected about something. I'm like, that's like all the worst parts of group therapy, but even worse because you can't even like pre-select to be in it. Like you're just there. I don't think like what I'm talking about is even therapeutic at all. Like it feels therapeutic because we're asking people to be vulnerable and then hopefully like gain some empathy for themselves and others like that's what it shares with group therapy but really therapy is supposed to be like you're cognitively doing work you're choosing new habits like across modalities like that's that's kind of like the loosest definition of therapy you know however that like that thing where you're like drawing someone's emotions out showing them how it can be leveraged against their own selves. And then, of course, like, it's not the kids, like, randomly choosing to do this. It's, like, administrators and teachers are in the room participating, administrating, organizing this leveraging of emotions. That is just positive traumatization. Like, that's, like, traumatizing somebody in order to get their resilience out and then using that resilience to change them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah I know what you mean. I know it's not therapy. It's literally No, I wasn't, like, like, contradicting you. I'm just, like... <laughs> eliciting, like, the strongest possible emotional reaction and being, like, any emotional reaction is good. Like, I, we did that at my, like, college orientation. I mean, it's literally, like, like, breaking someone's bone so it grows back better. Right? Like, it's, like, if a bone broke and then it's set wrong, trauma... So you re-break it, and then you reset it. Re-traumatization and trying, you know? What I think I mean to say is, because this wasn't just about, like, suicide and self-harm. This was, like, about everything, which is getting at your point about, like, usually people who go to group therapy have, like, a similar vulnerability or similar trauma in common, and they're specifically working through that. Whereas this was, like, let's throw in racism. Let's throw in sexuality. Let's throw in <laughs> bad home life. Immigration. Like, you know, like... <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, like, not for the individual kids. It's for, like, the culture. Like, something I wrote was that even, like, progress... Or, like, white people placing themselves or having relationships with black people. And then also, like, Asian people having relationships with black people benefit the white and Asian people to what standard? To the white standard. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? What do black people get out of it? Nothing. (laughs) Like, literally. What does it do for a black person? It has them recognized by white people. Like, according to white standard. Asian and white people who who claim proximity toward black people just benefit because they gain cultural value according to white supremacy which i think sort of clarifies a lot of the previous discussions we've had about like how to like authentically integrate i guess like how to like form genuine relationships despite the like residential segregation and like it kind of reorients the point of a friendship like that for you to be like a good non-black friend to a black person like all there is is that actual friendship and the relationship yeah do you know what i mean yeah like it could never be transactional in a positive way so it actually simplifies things a lot i think yeah that's something that like especially like early like freshman year of college 
was really difficult for me to understand. I was trying so hard to be like the good white person, you know, like white exceptionalism. Mm -hmm. And something like a lot of these questions about like me and like black men and me and like black women specifically about how like, you know, dehumanizing and objectifying it is like when you're either the like angry black woman or like the ghetto black woman or whatever, or you're like the superhumanized, like, you know, idolized on a pedestal, like superhuman black woman who does everything and like is smart and like empathetic and like takes care of the white friends, but like works super hard, you know, all of that. Mm -hmm. That brought up a lot of like memories for me of like swinging to like that end of the pendulum and my interactions with and like perceptions of black women and like not being able to understand why it was bad and like the learning processes, like the fact that I'm viewing this relationship as like okay how am I going to be a good white friend to a black person I'm like how can I just be a good friend right. to someone and like not in the sense of like that's literally circling back to I don't see race but like you know I can't try and micromanage this entire relationship based off of some theory I read around racism but like I can just take this interaction I have now and like do what I can do with it yeah yeah I this is actually very it's giving me a lot of like peace around this particular topic. I don't know. Like if I think about like how can I be a good non-black coworker to my black coworkers, like the answer is like I cannot. <laughs> There's no way to be be like scoring points. <laughs> Everything about allyship is the bare minimum. And if I am not an ally, it's simple. I am a perpetrator of racism and racist culture. And so it's less about like what points can I grab. It's more like let's not let's stop making mistakes yeah yeah that's the thing is like I think I also spent so much time like being focused on like points or like getting points or whatever like proving myself that like I honestly a didn't put enough effort into not making mistakes and b like totally missed the point I'm like that's just turning them into a transaction or like a non-human entity just in a different way yeah I agree it was also interesting to journal about like how I relate to black people I thought that was a really fresh question. <laughs> like, I haven't really heard that or thought about that before. You know, while I was writing, I mean, it's no secret that, like, let's say just on the one platform of TikTok, like, so many, the vast majority of popular sounds, uh, other than songs, is clips of Black women saying stuff. Their boldness and their sense of self, and, like, there's this disdain, and there's this pride, and there's this bluntness this celebratory ego that is really commodified and I was like writing from a genuine place about like relating to that and like finding it very cathartic but then I thought about how I relate to it in like a general nihilist disdain that is not what <laughs> these young black women in music and in film and like on reality shows are reacting to they're reacting to like way more corporeal corporeal pressures and traumas literally when I feel like if I said something and then saw like a guy be like oh my god yeah totally like that thing about sexism like really bothers me I'd be like what the fuck like <laughs> what do you mean like you clearly think you know what I'm talking about but like you definitely don't know what I'm talking about yeah so yeah I was thinking about how I'm interrupting and then co-opting their very hard-earned expression into something that I think I can relate with. Yeah, I think that's something like for me like in college in a much more racially diverse environment which is sad because my kids isn't even that racially diverse. It's something that like when I first got there I'm like I'm gonna be like a good white person and like 
be friends with all the people of color, specifically BIPOC, and, like, I'm going to do it. You know, there would be, like, groups of friends who are, like, like, entirely people of color or, like, specifically black people. And I would, like, be, like, oh, like, I want to be, like, their friend, too. It took a long time for me to, like, let go of, like, literally the whole point of them feeling good is, like, probably because I'm not there. Like, not me specifically as a person, although maybe, you don't know. Um, but like, like that environment where they can be safe and have that like celebratory joy and like friendship that they can all relate to and they can all understand, but like, I fundamentally cannot. When I understood, I was like, oh, like when I'm with my friends who are like all girls or all like femme presenting or at the bare minimum, just like, uh, like not cis men and like that type of like ease and like, we we're all on the same page, you know, we're all in on the joke. We all know what's up when we like, you know, make jokes about misogyny or like, you know, about appearance, like aesthetics as well. And, like, that experience of, like, yeah, like, we're all in this together. And then, like, some guy comes in. I'm like, oh, like, why are you here? Like, I'm like, you're, I'm like, oh, I love you. You're such a nice guy. But, like, it's not, now it's not the time. Again, obviously not equating the two. But, like, with me, like, it, it took me way too long for it to click. But that, like, also goes back to, like, last week about, like, white fragility of me. And, like, I must be a part of this. Like, you, you don't have to be. Like, literally, sometimes the best the way you can do they're like the best thing you can do to be a good like non-black or a good white person a good white person made audio note that i was making air quotes um is literally just like move yourself it's fine yeah because i mean it's that proximity thing again like for in like a white or an asian or a non-black person who's friends with a black person you're like oh yeah like this like i have a black friend or like oh no i like grew up in a like around a lot of black people and stuff like if you're saying that, it's already kind of it's moot. Like it's a moot point at that <laughs> at that yeah. point. Um, because your black friends are not going around being like, Oh yeah, I have this one white friend unless it's to like say something bad about you. <laughs> 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 That's how I feel a lot about like yeah. posturing to to white people or like posturing against them, you know? Like it's all social currency these like friendships with black people yeah. I don't know I feel like the more I learn about race theory the more I like you know intentionally lean into like whatever dregs of humanity that can be called white culture <laughs> I know what you mean <laughs> I'm like okay we're I'm like we're embracing the horse girl well yeah because like it is really beautiful like all of the multicultural families multicultural neighborhoods and like genuinely multicultural friend groups like those experiences are amazing like they're so valuable like that's they act as like social resilience I guess again at the expense of black people for the benefit of non-black people yeah but like truly being in like settings like that where the power is is shifted that is what makes an impression on on allies I guess those references at least just speaking amongst non-black people those references are very important and to be treasured and to be consistently repeatedly mulled over reflected on I guess thinking back on my time in art school I remember these moments of like genuine jealousy around like a certain work people would create and also like very specific aesthetics that people of color would come up with black people but also like Asian people like specifically Korean people or like people who are from like Korean American families I mean, obviously not all of them, and, like, it varied from media to media, but there were often, uh, like, threads of certain aesthetics that sort of tied together racial groups, but often because they were making work about their, like, racial identity or, like, immigrant families and stuff, 
and they often would have like you know sort of cultural touchstones that were similar to one another and they would make work about those things and often collaborate with one another and create sort of I mean obviously very individual aesthetics and individual art practices but they would be in conversation with one another and I remember like that feeling of like oh I need to copy that like I need to make work like that it wasn't something I really pursued like I don't think I ever made a project where I was like genuinely copying it like trying to but I remember being like oh I should try and emulate that like I should keep that in mind and it was only like you know as I became a senior and like was working on my thesis and started to like discern my own sort of artistic voice much more clearly or like my own particular aesthetic more clearly where I was like oh like I actually I don't that aesthetic is super valued because it's like the social value. It's like the cultural sort of cachet of those black aesthetics or the aesthetics of people of color. Like, I don't need to try and capitalize on that. Right. I think like, I think you're speaking to the white reason to value them. Not just limited to commercial either, because obviously there are like Asian and black consumers and like that might be what they're attracted to is like truly new ethnic work. So that's a piece of the value that can't be overlooked. But, you know, I think you're describing a really American problem because I can think of just about any generation. So first generation, like your parents immigrated here, you immigrated here, um, like any race really going in like all different directions. This desire for cultural touch points, like this feeling like they're missing from you. So, for example, I, as, like, a kid, I wanted to be a white kid so bad because, like, I read all these books where, like, you know, like, kids, like, have a, like, their best friend lives next door and they always lived in, like, one town, like, their whole life and, like, their grandma, they see their grandma every weekend or whatever. And, like, to me, uh, that was, like, a white thing, which is funny because I would think about, like, climbing a tree, like, to me was a white person thing and, like... (laughs) Uh, being able to get your clothes dirty was a white person thing and like having a hair part <laughs> was a white thing or I think I'm talking more about like the ability to like experiment or something or like buy your own clothes like go to the mall and like be like with your friends was a white thing but at the same time there's so many Asian American kids who like crave the cultural touch points of like whatever heritage they have like they're like oh I am the diaspora you know like we have this craving for that and then when people turn that into like very conscious art that's why it matters to like buy from black owned businesses or Asian owned businesses or women owned businesses is not because like they deserve our charity or they their products necessarily have more commercial merit or something like that but it's it's because they're not just fulfilling your tangible need through the product, but they're also fulfilling this like very social, personal need to re- to surround yourself with with your culture and surround yourself with these values that you think you came from, and you don't have to like forge them in an existential way against the white hegemony. Yeah, I mean that's what often their work, like many people's work, was about, like this idea of creating an identity or creating a culture accessible to other people who had similar lived experiences to them in a way that was more than just to like shore up against white supremacy but was its own entity like separate from it instead of just being like a sort of a survival thing but like a celebratory thing i mean i'm not doing the work justice that people were making great work (laughs) 
Well, yeah, and that's why there are, for example, it's Pride Month, and the thing about, like, rainbow capitalism has been a big topic, but a lot of, like, gay people when they start out, or, like, gay people when we were, like, in middle school and high school, they would gladly buy these rainbow capitalist things, like, go to H&M, buy, like, a pin or a shirt or whatever with a rainbow on it, like, and that was, like, genuine. Truly, they were, like, they felt represented and like they they felt that connection and stuff that emotion can be real and then now as american culture we're becoming more informed and like the idea about how fake it is and how much of a money grab it is being more proliferated now people still have that need to surround themselves with objects that represent values but now they are going to like order them from like an Etsy seller who like makes little ceramic frog earrings. But the frog is like riding on like a lesbian flag or whatever, you know, like we're just fulfilling our needs mm-hmm. yeah. because now we have more access. I mean, yeah, like I saw some posts that was like, you know, like the separate ideas can coexist that like it's bad that cap- like corporations are just like turning stuff rainbow just as a money grab. But it's also like kind of crazy when I think about it the shift of how much more prevalent that is I don't know if it would really be a cultural indicator because obviously that's like depends on exactly where you are but the fact that it's become so prevalent as an indicator that like it's becoming like more and more the popular opinion to be although I'm sure maybe internally homophobic less overtly and explicitly homophobic obviously the money grab aspect isn't a good thing but like the fact that it's become like the more popular and therefore more profitable thing I think is really like interesting to watch the way that tide has like turned within my lifetime and I'm like okay it's still bad but like it's kind of interesting to see well yeah I think we sort of like remember seeing like queer baiting happen and we're like oh my god that's representation you know like our reference point is different we remember a far more starved time um yeah when like one company put a flag up on like you know facebook and we're like oh my god this is it and we were like oh my god that's so brave of them but like that's the thing right like like sometimes people of color will be friends with white people and they're like no 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 like they're they're you know they're like pretty good for what they are which is white (laughs) yeah but they genuinely mean it like and it's like a real gratitude they do feel and maybe that gratitude is wrong or something or whatever but it's like we have to not um be upset with people for accepting the love they think they deserve <laughs> I don't know where that, I don't know where that came from but um came yeah from your soul Yari your soul. <laughs> um another thing that's been bothering me is I saw this TikTok where someone was like oh like you're proud of being LGBTQ and you're part of the movement and you love I don't know you're proud of it or whatever and then it was like tell your grandma like come out to your grandma it's just this like move back to what it means to like really be queer or something like that it feels like it's back to the idea of like winning points in a relationship yeah it's this value that, again, is just sort of measured in... Like winning points at being queer. And who are you winning points for? You think it's to be included in the queer community, but, like, the those people who are leaving out queer people because they're not queer enough is, like, it's not for queer people. It's, like, an, a reaction to non-queer people and the non-queer hegemony. Um, I think a lot about this tweet that says... You all treat the LGBTQ community 
like a birthday party you weren't invited to as opposed to a community that formed out of a need for survival and like when I first read it I was like oh this is about like rainbow capitalism and this is about like like oh I when I'm drunk I kiss girls or whatever but it also now works for this where this is for people to survive together if like you're about gender and sexuality liberation like this is not about I don't know proving it to anyone like you are or you aren't yeah and the point is that a lot of things are actually like not they're just fluid and like if we changed our mind about all of that like then we wouldn't have to have a queer community anymore if that makes sense we can still have like celebration of queerness and celebration of queer love but we wouldn't need this like survival-based community anymore i know that's something i think also like you could tie in like to this remembrance of how much of like queer community is based in like survival and like you know simply getting through it's also like obviously the generational thing so many people forget about aids that even existed with covid and everything like imagine if covid was happening and like no one was talking about it and they were pretending it wasn't well i think also speaking from like a white liberal like community where it's like fairly well accepted i mean obviously it's not like there's no homophobia or whatever or like no transphobia or anything but it's so fairly well accepted it's become so much easy easier to pretend like it didn't exist and that's back to like a, i don't see race or like i don't see that thing or it's like you need to be able to see these differences because they do exist and like even if it's easier for you to pretend it didn't happen in like your day-to-day life like things like the AIDS crisis did happen and like kind of it's things are still ongoing yeah it's like what Janine said about these like recent generations of like really successful Asians in business and tech we forget yeah or it's not that even we forget you know kids are born and they think of stuff as history like that's okay but we like actively erase that history and like we for we also neglect to figure out what role histories like that should play in our identities we are like actively neglecting to create that connection um once my friend who is also korean american asked me like what percent korean do you feel culturally which is like a pretty like common question i think like i've talked about it with my friends like at different points in my life and stuff I was like, oh, I think I'm 0% culturally Korean. And he was like, what, really? And I was like, well, what percent do you think you are? And he was like, oh, I would say mostly like 70%. And I was like, why do you think that? And he was like, oh, because I, you know, I like, I love Korean food. And like, I I spend a lot of time like listening to Korean music. And like, I have a lot of Korean friends and we like talk about what it means to be Korean American. And like, we talk about our families and like my family's also very culturally Korean still. Like, I really feel like that heritage has been like brought up with me, you know, like all valid points. But I was like, my problem is like, there is a Korea. It isn't just like me. And then I feel different from America. So that means I'm Korean, you know? There's actually Korean people and they actually like Mm -hmm. listen to music and they actually look at the news and they actually go to school and learn about Korean history and like stuff like that. If I don't know what Korean current events are, if I can't name my Korean senator, what makes me Korean? If I don't know like what cities are around where I would have lived if I were in Korea, then what makes me Korean? Because the point is like I can know about Korean history but I am not, like, 
Korean. I don't live there. My life isn't there. My friends, my community isn't Korean because Korea is a place. <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. And he was like, oh, that does make sense because he was thinking about his mom and how he was like, she only reads Korean newspapers and only watches news about Korea. And it like really frustrated him because he was like, you've lived in the US for almost 20 years now. And she's like, I don't care about the US like at all. <laughs> and he's like, how can you say that you've lived here for 20 years? She's like, I, I'm Korean. I don't care about like US politics. And like, while well, you know, that is its own issue. And then like, my mom also has said multiple times throughout my childhood, she's like, why should I learn English? I'm Korean. Like, I think that's more valid than Korean American kids here being like, oh, I think I'm 70% Korean because I listen to Korean R&B. <laughs> I do love the resistance to like assimilating to American culture. <laughs> And yeah. Like yeah, good for her, definitely. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. There's no right answer because like the whole point is that like physical and financial imperialism should have never happened. So there's no like really correct response or like healthy response. <laughs> but yeah, we just need to learn to value everything. Like people who are stupid and are like writing fucking poems about like persimmons or like the smells and the. F- the foods of Asia or whatever like the emotion is there and that's worth I don't know not respecting I guess but like it's real it's not worth policing like (laughs) yeah (laughs) and I can also I can have my own opinions on it and and they can also learn after the fact and realize like their emotions are misplaced but that doesn't make the emotions less real and so we need to work around it we can't just be like oh, LGBTQ people who, like, buy rainbow merch are stupid. Yeah. Like, dude, those people want to belong. And they yeah. they thought they found it. I mean, that's also, like, that's how I feel about, like, women who do plastic surgery. Like, it's not, like, you know, to get, like, a smaller nose. And they're like, oh, I just, like, it just helps my self-confidence. And I'm like, okay, like, I could go into a whole lecture about, like, your preference for a, like, very particular style of nose is absolutely, a, like, a racialized beauty standard. And, like, you know, that's not as benign as, like, preferring the color blue to the color red. We could get into that, but it's also, like, I also get it. I'm, like, they just want to feel good. (laughs) Like, we just, sometimes people just want to feel good. Yeah, and I don't think it should stop us from, like, having productive conversations with people like that, right? Yeah. But with, for example, like, LGBTQ people buying merch, it doesn't make them any less LGBTQ. (laughs) Like, yeah. I was going to say, it doesn't make her less of a feminist, but I'm like, yeah. Could we make that argument? (laughs) Maybe it does. Well, yeah, because it's like a non feminist action. So, but that's a little different because it's like direct, whereas like LGBTQ and like capitalism are like two sort of interlocked, but not the same thing, you know? Plastic surgery is something you can opt out of under capitalism. Capitalism is not something you can opt out of, (laughs) (laughs) unfortunately. I'm like, in the Asian conversation it's like just because these people are corny and fucking lame doesn't make them (laughs) any less like you know lost and or without a homeland like it's how they feel i did have closing questions i guess like especially at the two-week mark the halfway mark um what have i learned about me and anti-blackness and how am i thinking differently about white supremacy two weeks in I've definitely, like, come, kind of more come to terms as opposed to, like, 
I've understood that like my denial is not helpful and especially when it comes to things like fragility and exceptionalism those are like sort of key pitfalls for myself that like really prevent me from addressing the other issues as well so like coming to terms with the fact that like it exists at an extent of like more than I wanted it to I was like yeah of course I like do those things but like I'm not that bad like I obviously like I came into it being like I'm not that bad so just like coming to terms with it is like the first positive step I can take you know I don't know this week was very like it was helpful to me because it helped me pinpoint a lot of more like specific instances or specific relationships whereas like the week before was a lot more about like looser concepts where I'm like okay I know that I do this and that and or have this you know but like it was really difficult for me to think of exact instances and then if you don't if you can't think of those instances it's hard to think of action to take against it you know and this was really helpful with like pinpointing these like precise relationships where where it manifests and while that was you know discouraging and embarrassing and like guilt inducing it also was encouraging in the way that it gave me the opportunity to think of more concrete action action to take All right, everyone, thank you for joining us for this second week of June um, with Roses All Trash, the podcast company read community. Please follow us wherever you get your podcasts, be that on iTunes, like Apple Music, Spotify, etc. We are there. And also on Instagram at Roses All Trash. And as well as our personal Instagrams at RRRYEN and at Catherine.Shark. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next week. Bye, see you. Bye.